0: They made up their minds, and they started backing Left before the sun came up that day.
1: Something, something, eternal summer snacking. Where were they going without ever knowing the way? Something happened, and they were behind us. Always more important things to say. In turn, of something else, I forgot the words. Where were they going without ever knowing the way? Here we go, this is the weird part. Anyone can see the road that they walked on was paved in gold. It's always summer, they never get old. They never get hungry, they never get old and gray. You see them shadows wandering off somewhere. Walk up together, but they really don't care. Wanted the highway, they're happier there. Today, today, bow, bow, bow. The Way by Fastball, remember that one? They had another hit that people don't remember called uh, Out of My Mind, I believe. Out of my head, won't you, out of my mind, how can I ever be so blind? That was it. Then they went away, which now I don't think happens. Nobody goes away anymore because you can always end up on Cameo. And you can always go on a uh, humiliating reality program. All right. Hi, everybody. We're doing chapter three here of the Dawn of Everything. I'll mostly just be like recapping the argument Because I honestly, at this point, don't have a lot to respond to because I don't really know that much about this stuff. I'm not a uh, a connoisseur of early modern, or of early human uh, history. So I'll just throw some, you know, half-baked reactions here. But uh, at this point in the book, they're still very much invested in grab-grow, very much invested in demolishing certain uh lingering cliches about early humanity although i have to say some people have told me that a lot of the stuff that they're like kind of claiming to blow the lid off has not been like current thinking in any of these fields for a long time but once again this because this is a very self-consciously uh political act to try to create a uh, new narrative for a general reader. And what that means is establishing your uh, right to speak, basically, and your uh, legitimacy. And the way you do that is by killing uh, the old gods. Because while current thinking on a lot of these subjects might have gone beyond a lot of these cliches that they're debunking, the the frozen sort of popular... Uh, understanding of these things uh, might not have. So, they're establishing credibility by killing their old god and saying, uh, whatever you half remember from school about the origins of uh, human social structures uh, is bullshit, and we're here to give you the real stuff. So, one of the first uh, so they start by uh talking about the Ice Age. Went back to thirty thousand years ago, humans uh I'm sorry, uh sixty thousand years ago or so, uh when humans start to uh produce like a material culture that we can look at. Uh and one of the first things that they point out that is not something we think of is that very early humans would have been much more physically diverse than humans are now, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about, that humans would have looked radically different. They say it's, it would have been like Middle Earth. There would have been giants and dwarves. And I know enough to know that there was a hobbit race discovered in Indonesia, right, on an island. So that tracks. So we have humanity that's much more physically varied, but uh, also fundamentally unknowable in many ways because of just how removed from our uh, sight their lives were and how little remnants they left uh, of their civilizations or of their existences. Uh, and then the next uh, concept that they debunk once again, something... Something I have a feeling has been uh, not current in uh, the field in a while is the notion of the sapient paradox where you supposedly had human uh, existence, like human social existence coalescing and then a, uh uneven distribution of uh, evidence of material culture, like human's taking their minds to the task of reshaping the world around them instead of just living uh, in the world as animals with, with minimal um, uh, like considered expression. Uh, and Grabgro uh, claims that this sapient paradox uh, is actually a mirage caused by the fact that while uh, Europe for a long time seemed to be uh, the only place where you'd find evidence from sixty thousand years say uh, ago of things like you know uh, uh, tool uh, manipulation and especially uh the creation of uh, pigments and and uh, decorative items that it, that disparity actually came down to the fact that. Europe has a lot more money now and has a lot more money to spend on things like archaeological excavations. And so the evidence was uh, more plentiful there because the resources devoted to looking for the evidence was more uh, robust. And that now, in in, uh, the recent history, we've found evidence of human uh, culture, human material culture, from 60,000 years ago, uh, all throughout uh, the world, from Indonesia to, to Africa. And the, the point of this for GrabGrow is to say uh, that everywhere, as soon as humans begin to uh, live as humans amongst with each other, they act like humans do. They, they consider, they express, uh, they create. and this is part of a, a a one of the stronger uh assertions of the book so far that these ancient humans were in all fundamental ways basically like us in that they were capable of political thought and political consideration and deliberation and that that affected the the choices they made in how to live they were not uh being uh sort of herded by nature in one direction or another without the ability to intercede through collective action uh, the grab girl point out that a lot of the times uh, books about early humans compare early tribal humanity to uh, chimps and and bonobos and other apes and not to humans because they the 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 buried assumption is that they were more in their social lives like apes than they were like modern humans. And Grabgro's argument is, no, that is not the case. They were basically us at a lower level of... Jesus Christ. Terrifying. Fucking Amber Alert. There was an Amber Alert, guys. Yikes. And one of the things that undermines uh the traditional understanding of these things most is the fact that uh the hunter gatherer bands pre-agricultural civilization uh carried out um uh, uh monumental architectural constructions uh that would have required a degree of social collaboration and cooperation that is outside of our general understanding of what a uh, hunter-gatherer, pre-agriculture or non-agricultural society uh, is capable of. Like in uh, Turkey and in Russia, you have these massive temporary structures that are put together Uh, And they claim that they are put together around seasonal um, hunting festivals that that humans would spend large parts of the year as smaller bands uh, searching for sustenance throughout a region. And then in certain periods of the year when uh, animals like uh, gazelles or mammoths were moving through natural choke points, they would all come together to uh, kill as many of them as they could and then uh, had a extended ritualized feasting uh, time which also involved the creation of these giant structures and to build that you need social organization in a way that conventionally is understood to only be possible in a context of Fixed hierarchies and generally uh, agricultural uh, production, and in some cases, in, uh, it, such as the civilization that made the stone, made Stonehenge, there's evidence that uh, they had carried out agriculture for a while and then stopped made a decision, made a conscious decision to stop doing settled agriculture. Once again, evidence for fluidity and the ability of of early humans to choose their own destiny and their own adventures, as it were. They also talk about how uh, primitive culture accepted eccentricity much more readily than uh, our civilizations do, and that eccentric figures, people who are physically and... uh, psychologically distinct from the community had uh were were uh, respected to some degree or another uh and that this phenomenon explains why uh there are a number of anomalously um uh, rich grave sites from this era where you have uh uh skeletons covered in jewels and and finely crafted artworks, uh, things that would have taken thousands of hours of labor to make and were buried with people at a time when very few people were buried at all. Uh, And this has led some people to conclude that these early civil societies had hierarchies and aristocracies and that these uh, graves are evidence of that. Grabgro claim instead that since so many of these uh, relatively few graves that have been found uh, are are people by children with uh, actual like genetic abnormalities like dwarfism uh, that it's more likely that these were honored graves of uh, eccentrics in some way or another, and that points to a way that social uh, that not a non hierarchical sort of egalitarian uh, uh, collective social organism can be pushed in one direction or another, absent a overlord, absent a, uh, a chief or a king with uh, stable and uh, sovereign power, is that, is that in times of crisis, when decisions have to be made, uh, you can turn towards these sort of holy uh, figures. Yeah, the Midsummer Incest Child, very good example of this. So then they talk about uh, Claude Levi-Strauss and his work with the Napaquamara Society in the Amazon, uh, which is a very interesting uh, uh, tribe that has seasonal changes in their structure of their society. During the wet seasons, they live together in... uh, Villages in covered buildings, and then in the dry season, they go out into small family sized bands to uh find resources uh and that when they're and that there are there are chiefs there are sort of uh chosen leaders who exist in both cases but have different degrees of authority given the uh uh the structure during the summer when they're leading hunting bands they have Actual authority over, uh, the their, uh, fellows, but in the villages that uh, authority dis-, dis disintegrates, which is also something that happens with uh certain Inuit tribes, where uh during hunting uh expeditions you have a, a rigid patriarchy, and then uh, in the winter when everyone is holed up in the big meet- uh, in the big meeting houses eating all the blubber, it's basically a giant uh, poly orgy with no hierarchy or rules at all. And that the uh, Cheyenne and Lakota, after they had adapted uh, nomadic horse, uh, uh, nomadic horse, horse-based horse lifestyle after the introduction of Spanish horses into America, uh, had a similar situation where they would spend time uh, hunting as Spans, uh, that had no real connection to one another at that moment, and then coming together for massive feasts rituals, and that during these periods, not only did you have authority in 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 the form of chiefs, you had authority vested into police essentially a police force that was there to police behavior during these uh, these mass gatherings well like uh basically your uh, your music festival security. The guys in the yellow uh, windbreakers, and then all of these structures had about them the uh, the commonality that they are that the traditions embedded within them, seemingly designed to prevent the accumulation of power uh, and the and the abuse of power by any clique or individual. Uh, and, uh, according to Grabgrau, one of the chief critiques of this notion that, that there is a a self-conscious rejection of hierarchy in these societies is, is, well, how would they know what to reject if they never lived under it? Uh, and for them seasonality and this seasonal change necessitated by the conditions of sustenance uh is what explains that at least in part because while they're hunting while they're seeking sustenance during lean lean times uh they do experience authority uh and they and the authority that at that moment is necessary to successfully uh procure sustenance but that when they come together uh and that that need is gone and there is a degree of plenty because all of the the product of the hunt has been brought in all the surplus can be enjoyed uh in that case they don't want to feel the uh abrogation of 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 rights and and or not rights but the, the, the they don't want to feel that that boot on their neck uh the, that they feel when they're out hunting so that's that's the idea there what happened to the other page? I had another page here. Ah oh, crap, I had another page of notes. Oh well I'll have to keep going.
0: Alright, I'll have to just look through what the rest of this is.
1: Or is that everything? Oh yeah, that is. No, that's not it. Oh yeah, here it is. So the main the point of this chapter is to make the case that there was no transition from hunter gathering to agriculture whereby people uh shifted from one to the other that that both systems existed simultaneously that all systems were uh accessible to early humans in the, uh, the state of uh, of Superabundance, I guess you'd call it, when you consider how few humans there were versus how much resources there are the the uh on the planet Earth for humans to access now there might be areas where uh you lose the ability to sustain yourself, but you could move nobody is holding anything down. Uh, and so you had systems like, uh, the. you had these mixed systems where people would go out and gather, do what they had to do to survive in that condition, and then come together and consume. And in that, uh, and that their uh, political order vary depending on the demands of uh, the, 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 <clears throat> the conditions they were dealing with. And so if, if that's not the case, that there's this rigid structuring from one to the other, that there's this stagism, then the question is not how did uh, inequality emerge out of something like agriculture being uh, adopted, but rather, why did we get stuck in one? Why did we get frozen into one arrangement uh, that was hierarchical and that, and that did demand uh, the uh, abs- assumption of authority uh, through orders of power? When did we stop moving and shifting? And I haven't gotten to it yet, but I'm assuming they will soon. Uh, I know from reading about the book that their big ar- one of their big arguments is that agriculture, the adoption of agriculture, did not necessitate hierarchy, that there, was, uh, significant agri- there were significant agricultural societies that were able to organize uh, horizontally around agriculture. And I don't know, we haven't gotten to that point yet. Uh, But their big argument is that it it was not that, it was something else. Uh, Basically, that it is not determined by material conditions. That's that's their big overarching thesis here. And we'll see. As I said, I don't know. Uh, We haven't really gotten yet to... uh, to that we're still in the background breaking down uh, some of these assumptions and rebuilding them with new ones. And I have to say, as I said, I don't really know that much about uh, this area, but it certainly seems plausible, you know? Uh, I I certainly accept the premise that early humans were capable of making considered political decisions. I don't see any reason why not. If they are capable of communicating with each other, then they're capable of making collective decisions. I think that's axiomatic. So next week we'll read the fourth chapter. Let me see how long it is. This one actually ended up not being very long and not having that much to talk about. So I might do two chapters next time. I think I'll just do chapter four next time. Yeah, it's pretty, It's like 50 pages. So, I mean, it makes me think like, okay, well, it, what, what, what did stick us? If that's what happened, what did make us stick with hierarchies? Uh, I mean, the first thing that just comes to mind is written language, and obviously that's a that's a, a chicken and egg situation. But I can see a situation where writing emerges out of a practical need created by a specific. Uh, uh situation and then once imposed uh f- has effect of freezing social structures and and I think very importantly uh dividing social uh organisms between the literate and the non literate. But I don't know. Because once again the, the argument here is that uh is that it gets fixed so it's not a question of when a hierarchy emerges really it's when uh the uh when the alternative to hierarchy disappears amongst the people in a given area but yeah, like the Incans, Incans were hierarchical as shit, and they didn't have written language, so. But I do really believe that at a certain point a,
0: uh, a, a economy based on surplus extraction
1: uh, will destroy any vestiges of, uh, of egalitarian social relations uh because the reality of uh of one group of people repeatedly and systemically consuming the surplus produced by another uh, shatters social bonds, at least the kind that are necessary to allow for horizontalism. At a certain point, people are no longer living in the world, uh, uh, in a natural world, or even a collectively uh, agreed-upon version of the world. They are living in a version of the world crafted by a a faction, by an elite tier, who, who then projected onto everyone, who absorb it in one way or another. They might be alienated from it, they might be unhappy within it, but their understanding of the world is still uh, restrained by it. And technology has the has the effect of overtime uh, reifying and, uh, (laughs) extending the power of that, that realm, that, that fantasy world to recreate the earth in its image and to, and to spread the, uh, vocabulary of that reality, uh, much more deeply, and that's why I think that at the end of the day, a lot of the stuff that they're saying about in this book about how things were possible how the the liquidity uh, of uh, human possibilities uh in prehistory uh is not actually very relevant uh to the current moment because I think in very real respect, we are different we're different species like he's saying that early humans were capable of Political thought and deliberation, I believe that to be true, but what that means then versus now, I think is uh, is fundamentally distinct, and I think it comes down to human civilization or human uh, culture, whatever you want to call it, from bands to ex- advanced societies, wherever it is, is—whatever humans coming together to, to live is a dialogue, right? And uh, in this chapter, Grab Grow Talk about how uh, real human thought is really only capable in conversation. Real human reflection is only truly capable in dialogue. By an individual mind can't really do that. That's a, that's a fantasy uh, of the modernity and of the, the, the isolated human uh, co- uh, consciousness. That That's not uh, the reality. The reality is, is that real deliberation and real reflection are only capable through, uh, through dialogue. But it's not a dialogue just between humans. It's a dialogue, I guess you'd call it a trilogue, between humans and the natural world that they inhabit. Which cannot speak in the same language as humans, but that does have a ability to communicate that can be deciphered by humans. Now, what they're going to discern that this that uh, what the nature is telling them uh, might very well not be accurate, because they don't know. But if enough people come together to figure out what nature is saying and act accordingly they will if they're wrong they will get owned if they're right they will prosper and if they if they prosper they will continue to accept what nature is telling them basically and then technology emerges as a way to, I mean, for the first technology really being language. I mean, the first technology of civilization being language. The ability to communicate and therefore coordinate. And then subsequent technology is a, an elaboration of that process of, of, of having human interaction uh, that can move towards group prosperity. An idea that you know, there is my interests, that there is an I, that there is a you, that there is an us, and that they have interests that can be aligned. And then technology can help move those interests in one direction. But those tools, the technological tools, are not equally accessible to everyone, and it's that asymmetry that over time accumulates poles of uh, oppression and uh, and of domination, and th- those and those poles pull us away from that dialogue. That, we, that humans were having, and replaces it with technological compulsion, and at the same time, pulls us away from the natural uh, partner in the dialogue. And humans in this point in history have been uh, so thoroughly alienated from the uh, feedback loop with the natural world. And so dependent on technology to make up for that alienation, just as it makes up for our alienation from each other. That the uh, spontaneous power to just live differently, that... Grab grow are basically arguing is always present in humanity, uh, cannot be effectively pursued because the necessary, um, the necessary relationships between people and between the environment have been severed.
0: Our attempts to to find new ways to live
1: are always going to butt against these rigid technologies that at any given moment hold sway over the vast majority of humanity. Like property. Like these these societies that GrabGro talk about have in common, one, no language, no written language, and two, no property. And those are, I think, related. That means the ability, just the sheer ability to enforce hierarchy is is seriously limited. Because how are you going to make somebody do something for you if they don't want to? Who are you going to... They can just leave. And that is not a thing that current humans can do to enforce uh, egalitarianism and horizontalism.
0: But we'll see where the rest of the argument goes.
1: Because Unlike in prehistory, any attempt to uh, organize small-scale uh, alternatives to uh, systems of control and domination and hierarchy and conveyor belts of, uh, of resource extraction uh, depend on those networks. They cannot opt out of them. And that people who make them up are still riven with those same uh, imposed identities that living in these structures has created for them. I mean, the Chaz certainly, I think, is a sobering example. I mean, there's, you couldn't even write it, right? Like, if you think about this, you couldn't even write this. I mean, that's really, I think if you want to understand, like, what, what hyper or late capitalism, any of these buzzwords mean, like, as terms of living them, it is that, and, and, and this, for younger people, doesn't make sense because they've never lived any other way, but for somebody who's a little older, who experienced the end of history in the 90s. When we all kind of knew what was coming we could we could sense it, but we couldn't articulate it other than in you know satire and in uh, uh dystopia that we imagined uh all that's here now, and as a result the uh the tropes the of of like ironic uh reversal uh that made up our Earlier generation of artistic responses to the anxieties of modernity uh, are just w- reality. It's just what happens, like Donald Trump being president, uh, and take the, the 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 situation in Chaz where you had this massive uprising against unaccountable police violence, right? Disproportionately applied to uh, black people, right, leads to this area in the center of Seattle where the police tactically retreat and allow a self-organized uh, little uh, quasi-political commune to, to of, evolve. And people show up and they want to they do land acknowledgements and they want to bring in animals to try to start farming, And of course, a bunch of people show up, people who are maybe strangers, people who people don't know, and a police force self-appoints uh, with guns. Many of them, I guess, were, a few of them anyway, were were veterans. Uh, and in the course of their duty of non-hierarchical uh, anarchist police force, They shoot and kill a young black guy, a young black kid. And then after it happens, uh, make a public statement saying that they're uh, doing an internal investigation. Which is exactly what police forces say after they do a, a, a shooting of a young black kid. I mean, wait a minute, LOA land acknowledging and still not returning it? Returning it to who? I got to say, the idea of land back to me doesn't make any sense. Because these the natives who still exist in this country are Americans. I'm sorry. At the end of the day, they are American capitalist subjects. putting them in charge of land does not change the char- the character of uh, the system that we operate here it only changes the names on the deeds And the idea that you're going to have a very small group of people, even if you say, okay, not just any natives, but the specific ones who have good politics and want to decommodify land, who's going to accede to that? Mass movement and mass politics are the only thing that's going to transform social relations in this country. Because we are all, I mean, all of us are wildly alienated from each other and from our environment and i do think that the 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 task of socialism is to mend those fractures and to mend that alienation but that the only way that that happens is by taking the technological connections that exist between people the technological capabilities of uh, of land and resource management that exist, and democratizing them, which is a political project, and it is a material project, and it can only be carried out by, I'm sorry, by the uh, cultivation. An advancement of class consciousness. People acting in coordination along an axis of material interest. Because that is the only thing, that is the only thing that can truly discipline people towards a goal. All other interests, the interests of the abstract ideas of being free or something, can be manipulated in the mind and meaning anything. It is, in every moment. The capitalist bonanza allows you any, any number of ways to feel like you're expressing your individual individuality and your politics and your supposed desires. But material interests, hunger, security, they can't be uh, fudged. They can't be compromised in the same way. If you're on the shit end of the stick, if you are seeing yourself declining. Principles can mean anything. And something like Chaz is a good example of that. A bunch of people come together to create this alternative model. And what does that mean? It means whatever anybody already wanted it to mean. I know there was a guy there who was like a fucking SoundCloud rapper or something who was like getting his mixtape out or something and that was what that meant If you if you horizontally organize alienated capitalist subjects they will recreate structures of capitalism absent a material project to literally discipline them, but not externally. It is an internal discipline. If I, I, if I am going to have a better, if my kid's going to have a better life than I do, if, if hell, if I am going to be able to sustain myself in the, even the medium term, I have to do this. And you have enough people who come to the same conclusion about what that is, then the, the discipline is internal. And then structures of hierarchy that emerge, emerge out of the necessity of organizing the people into effective action. Any other thing that you're trying to do just means what you want it to mean. Just like, fucking, just like morality has meant in the West since Protestantism. What God wants, what liberty is, whatever abstract notion of the good you're pushing for, is what you already wanted anyway. And what you wanted is, of course, not your want. Your desires are not your own. Our desires are imposed on us from the, from the culture we're enmeshed in. So any project that is not grounded in material advancement for the working class becomes individual self-expression, which is the
0: uh, indulgence of the ego.
1: You might not think of it that way, and you might not consciously be moving in that direction, but once you get into conflict with other people, this is the important part because that hierarchy, that uh, horizontalism, that is not without conflict. Of course, it is. People have different ideas, even if they're all they're all one hundred percent earnest and they think they've cleansed themselves of of uh, their bourgeois uh, taint. Uh, they're they're. Uh, th- Understanding of the world and what to do in it is going to be different, and they have to figure out how to move forward. In the conflict, the only thing that emerges is the most base and selfish, is the rule of the person who is willing to manipulate the system towards their ends. You either get a charismatic cult leader or you get a, uh, you get ruled by the most annoying, basically, the people who are most willing to badger and, uh, and refuse to compromise. And again, absent a material goal there's no way to know if those, uh, if the goals of that group, are compatible with effective action. But we'll see. We'll see with more. Next week, we'll read chapter four. That's my big... That's my big sticking point, is that if you're not listening to, like, the rumble of your stomach, if you're not having your... needs... your uh, politics sharpened by... by real consequences... It ends up just being a game, a game played with uh, the tools available to a capitalist economy. And it will be accommodated to the extent that it's compatible with the continuation of that system. Somebody says uh, that the Soviets wanted to do public transportation but everybody wanted a car and uh, that they assumed we'd make a a better people with a better society and we were wrong. Well, the thing is, the Soviet Union, as I've said several times, uh, was a, in a broad sense, certainly after uh, 1921, a mistake. Now, that doesn't mean that when the people in it should have... Given up. I, th- I think Bukharin was basically right. But because of the Soviet Union's need to compete with global capitalism on its own terms, it was never able to transcend labor alienation. Workers still, I mean, you could talk about the degrees of self uh, management that existed uh, in Soviet la- uh, manufacturing. But they still were factory workers, mainly the same way that American factory workers were. Their, their lives were broadly similar. And so it makes perfect sense that they want broadly similar things. A bigger refrigerator, uh, a bigger car, absent the ability to truly dictate the terms of their own uh, laboring lives. Well, they say somebody said Deng did this. Well, right, but Deng is operating uh, in the wake of the Soviet Union and the creation of the Soviet Union. I mean, in China, they're basically... And this is honestly uh, long-term unsustainable. I mean, China has... uh, step back to capitalism, state sponsored capitalism, and and but has still predicated on giving people the same promise of material uh uh consumption that America did. Which just cannot happen, given the current uh ecological constraints. You can't have a billion Chinese people living like Americans and that's all that there is absent a project that's the thing once you go from a revolutionary project to a settled uh, state system, alienation is going to compound and 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 spread and and have to be filled in with Promise of material solace. And there is a contradiction between uh, a working-class movement that is predicated on advancing material interests and the necessity that a socialist government would have to, would, as part of its creation, reorient people's uh, understanding of what their material interests are. And that's where that's where the 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 uh revolutionary project comes in and that's honestly what the one that is the germ of trotsky trotsky's uh deepest insight i think is the knowledge that if you just have another state with uh with central planning instead of uh of a market uh, you still have the same fundamental social alienation at play as you do under capitalism. And that it is the revolutionary project that changes people's relationship to each other and the world around them in a way that redefines for themselves what material interest means. And of course, that doesn't mean that there's no, there wouldn't be alienation in a like a literally progressive, like uh, forward-moving uh, uh, socialist state project, but that that alienation would be channeled rather than as it is under uh, stable state structures that we live under, where it accumulates and can only be subsumed. Can only be uh, denied by the creation of structures that only compound the alienation in the first place. Like, oh, uh, people are doing crimes. Well, get more cops. Throw them in prison. That creates its own problems that then require their own solutions. People are um, people are pissed off. Give them ho- give them cars. Give them give them uh, suburban homes well that creates their own that creates uh, their own crisis and it's spiraling crisis and the state can then only ever be caught in a in a cycle of adding contradictions on top of contradictions rather than fundamentally uh facing the contradictions as opposed to a revolutionary uh com- communist or socialist state where alienation is uh, structured towards the fundamental act of uh combating uh bourgeois social order, which doesn't just go away. That has to be, in every detail, isolated and reduced. Okay, so next week we're going to do chapter 4, see what happens, and talk some more
0: then. Bye-bye.